So again, uh, Sunday, January the 14th, we open our officer nomination period, and it's going to run two weeks until January the 28th at 10 p.m. I'm not exactly sure why 10 p.m., but that's in our little guidelines. Then those nominated who accept their nomination will go through a time of discernment and further instruction, training, and uh, until August, some six months worth, more, when they'll then go before the session, meaning the elders that meet together, and they'll be further questioned, and we'll speak about their gifting, their character, doctrine, sense of calling, like, do they have the time and the bandwidth? Um, and then if the, the session determines that, they, that this is the right time and God's leading in the life of this man, they'll approve them to stand for election or confirmation. So as is our custom, um, I'll preach a sermon on elders and a sermon on deacons uh, out of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16 this year. And then probably the third week I preach on this issue, I'll just preach about shepherding in general. Though next week Jeremy is going to be preaching, so we'll take a little um, break from that and then jump back in. Uh, So before we jump in, let me just say that Londale is abundantly blessed with a host of leaders, of various kinds of leadership within Lawndale, and I'm so thankful for that. We all benefit from that. Formal, informal leaders, ladies and men, emerging leaders from the youth, and that's a real strength, and I'm so thankful for that in our local family. And at the same time, in this time, we're talking about the former leadership structure that Jesus has ordained for his church, meaning the perpetual offices entrusted to qualified men to be elders and deacons, elders to oversee, deacons to serve. And that's what we're talking about here in these next few weeks. So to that end, I want to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16. Let's read God's word together, 1 Timothy 3. This saying is trustworthy, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, apt to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must Manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, 
not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. So I have four points. I'm going to try to go as concisely as I can. One is the context, second, the calling, third, the character, three, the competence. Context, calling, character, competence. So the, con- the context, you know, you may be here and you say, you know, what's the big deal? Why treat this issue? Why is it so important? Well, that's why verses 14 and 16 is part of our passage. It underscores the importance of this. So Paul is trying to visit Timothy. He's just recently put Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Timothy just recently gone. Like, Paul just got through with his first mission, his first uh, imprisonment in Rome. He and Timothy go to Ephesus. He puts Timothy there as the pastor. And um, things aren't going well. That's the big under, underlying issue here. Uh, so he wants to come and help Timothy and encourage him, but he's getting delayed. And so he writes a letter because it's so urgent that Timothy received this encouragement and instruction and through Timothy, the whole church. And that instruction is how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he expedites this letter to him. And in particular, he's concerned about you know, worship in chapter two and then the formal leadership structure in the church, elders and deacons in chapter three. It's urgent you get this information. You're in the mix right now. And the importance is further underscored by the fact that uh, Paul refers to the church as the household of God. It's a sweet name to call the church, the family, the family of God. And the idea is that God dwells among us like a family. Um, Not just the church in general, but that local church at Ephesus, meaning also this local church at Lawndale. Like God dwells in your midst. You are the family of God. And it's not just the dwelling place of any God, but it's the dwelling place of the living God. Meaning the true God is opposed to dead idols and the true God who is the source of life. All life that you have comes from this God who dwells in your midst. And as such, the church bears this huge responsibility. Like we are the dwelling place of the living God on earth. And so our responsibility is tremendous. And so he calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth. We together, can you imagine that that's the designation of us? That we together are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Just as a pillar and a buttress uphold and support a physical temple. You know, think of these great big temples. 
Even so, a local church upholds and supports the truth, both by our life together, how we live with each other, and also by our teaching, what we say. So therefore, by our deeds and our words. And so verse 16 sets forth what this truth is. And it does so in a beautiful little song. Exemplifying the fact that the gospel is beautiful. The living God became flesh, one of us. He shared our sufferings in this world, became like us in every way, except for sin, so that he might pay for your sin in full and be raised from the dead, thereby vindicated or approved and accepted. God would say, paid in full. We are the support and the upholder of that gospel message. So the idea is if lost people in the region of Ephesus are gonna be reached and discipled, it depends, humanly speaking, upon this church in Ephesus who shines forth by their words and deeds the gospel truth. In a similar token, if people are gonna be reached and discipled in our area, it depends, humanly speaking, upon churches like ours. Now the big deal is, as I mentioned, that what's underscoring all this is that the Ephesians church just isn't doing it. And you can't read 1 Timothy without reading a lot of problems. They're not loving each other, they're fighting. They're twisting up their doctrine, they're stingy. It's, it's not good. And what's really catches your attention is that Paul only planted this church five or six years earlier. And so you go back to Acts 19 and 20, and that's the planting of the Ephesian church. And in Acts 20, you remember that tearful, heartwarming account where he calls the Ephesian elders to himself as he's on the way to Jerusalem, and he really thinks he's gonna die there. So he thinks this is probably the last time he's gonna see his brothers in arms. And they hug each other and kiss each other and weep. And he tells them, you know, take care of the church of God, but he also says, watch out. From your midst, wolves are gonna arise and they're gonna twist things up. And it just didn't take long, it took five or six years. And so we have to look at the Ephesians church that Paul invested so much effort and time, intense labor in, shared the work with this group of men. It took five or six years and we had the situation of 1 Timothy. And you can't help but think that that was due in large part to the fact that the Ephesian church chose unqualified men to lead them and they led them astray. Mark Deaver says, churches rarely grow past the maturity of their leaders. They can be worse than their leaders, but they're not gonna be better than their leaders. Joseph Piper, former president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, he says, you know, if you're in the kitchen, and you wanna bake a cake, and you pour the flour and the sugar in a measuring container. You know, you pour it in there and it's all lumpy, different levels, and you have to smooth it out. But if you pour water in a container, is it lumpy? Do you have to smooth it out? Well, no, because water finds its own level. God's given it a quality where it's just gonna level out. And it's kinda like an, an image that, you know, that a congregation is gonna find the level of its leaders. It might be worse, but it's not gonna be better. 
And that's what's happened in the Ephesian church. So that's why Paul is so urgent in getting this information uh, to Timothy as Timothy's just fighting it out, like going after it, trying to shepherd and pastor in the midst of that difficult situation. Okay, so the calling. Uh, The calling is that Paul says this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And that phrase, this saying is trustworthy, happens five times in the pastoral epistles. And uh, it's not a quotation from scripture. It's more of a confessional statement about what everybody knows and believes. Because Paul and the other apostles have been telling them that. So it's kind of like a little mini confession or creed. So everybody knows, they just talk this way. Oh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Which just gives voice to the fact they saw it was very important and needed. Well, what is the office of overseer, this calling? It's a noun that comes from a verb. It's kind of a verbal noun, uh, episcopeo. Scopos. It means to look over, look over. Words like microscope and telescope come from this word. Uh, The Roman world used it for uh, someone who leads or is responsible for a group. The Hebrew background is someone who had oversight or care or guardianship of a group. Acts 20, 28, that cardinal passage where Paul calls the Ephesians elders to himself, uses overseer two, and it means to care for the church of God. Or better, more visually, to tend the church of God like a shepherd. And so it's intentionally bringing to your mind and imagination Everything an attentive, alert, loving shepherd would do for his flock. Knowing their needs, attending to them, leading them, protecting them, all of that is brought into the idea of the elder. Well, overseer refers to the same office as elder. They're not two offices, they're equivalent terms. Elder focuses on spiritual maturity the man of the man in office. Um, It's not that, you know, he necessarily has to be an older man, but oftentimes that is the case because we're talking about a man who's been seasoned and matured uh, in the faith. He's growing in godliness and it's evident. Overseer, as that focuses more on character, the type of man overseer focuses more on the work, the labor. And so it's what will he be doing Well, what this office entails is exercising oversight of a group serving as a shepherd to a flock. It's the job, it's the work. And Paul calls this task noble, meaning it's beautiful, good, and praiseworthy. It's a hard task, you just imagine. Instruction on elders and deacons in the midst of chaos in the local church. It's like, who wants to sign up for that? And so he calls this a beautiful, good, praiseworthy task. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna take time and effort, probably discomfort, a lot of prayer, some struggle, but it's worthwhile and commendable and valuable, like God delights in it. It's important to him. 
You see, it's work, as 1 Peter 5 says, under the chief shepherd. Like Jesus is the shepherd of this flock. The way Jesus shepherds a flock, which Acts calls a flock bought by his blood, is that he does so immediately through men he calls to represent him as under shepherds that are called to reflect him in this congregation. What a privilege and honor, but how difficult. And frankly, it makes you uncomfortable that I'm gonna represent Christ to you. Well, so Paul stresses the activity of this office. He desires a noble task. Like he's not desiring a status or an accolade or a validation or a resume builder, a spiritual resume builder. I mean, that's just not the case. He's desiring a job, a task, a work that's not gonna be easy, that work of shepherding under the chief shepherd to, to know a people, to feed a people, lead a people, protect a people. But it's something he aspires to. And that aspire to word is a very strong word. It's like stretch oneself out, reach out the hand for. Or desire to long for and set one's heart upon. And so sometimes we would think that sounds a little bit arrogant that I'm gonna actually stretch my hand out for this job. I mean, does that not entail, uh, Sinclair Ferguson asks, like that disqualifies me, that I shouldn't do that? Is that arrogant? But, but he says, well, I mean, the Apostle Paul doesn't think so. Um, and why is that? Well, leadership in the church is totally upside down. Like we, we worship an upside down savior. Like leadership in the church is not power and prestige. Leadership in the church is going low as you can. That's what Jesus did, our chief shepherd. He goes down, bearing hurts, sharing suffering, healing spiritual lives, becoming the flock's bond slave. That's what the elder is called to do. It's an aspiration and a desire to go down low in humble service and sacrificial ministry like Christ. Thankful for our session, thankful. It's going down in service, okay. And so we think of a, you know, if you're considering or, or, or if we're thinking of nominating, we'd say like, does this man like, have the time and the bandwidth for this? Is it the stage of life? Those sorts of things. Well, character. So uh, third point, character. Paul's just talked about desiring a task. So we'd naturally think the way our culture operates, the way we are, is that he's gonna launch into gifts. Certain skill set, hard skills that you need to do the job. That's how getting a job in our culture uh, is about. But the striking thing here is that Paul lists almost nothing about skill sets. He does, but it's way overshadowed by what he focuses on, and that is the man's character. And you see, scripture again is an upside down culture. The kingdom of God is just different. To do the job it's more important to possess a certain character than to perform certain competencies. Uh, scripture always views character as most important. 
Additionally, and we say that a lot in our, our church, is that what you do flows from who you are. The fact that you are a child of God by grace means that sanctification is learning what being a child of God is more and more, and that's also applied to elder and deacon. So as we consider these traits, I like what Mark Devers says. He goes, the most extraordinary thing is that they aren't that extraordinary. You know, you look at these and go, okay. I mean, because we're all called to do all these character traits. No one's exempt from it. They're just living as a kingdom member. Yet, and this is the the kicker, is that what we're all supposed to do as believers, our officers must also do as examples, which is their chief way of leading, and therefore their responsibility to grow in these is greater. And it's very convicting, very convicting for current officers. Um, so, Paul lists 14 character traits and two competencies. Now, really, it's just one, but, uh, well, I don't want to confuse you, but 14 character traits, two competencies, but I'm double counting one. Okay, I'm just going to lay that out there, and we'll figure it out. So, Paul says, a man chosen for office must have these. Like it's necessary. It's not an option, and n- nor is it like a buffet, like you select a few but it's comprehensive and it's something we don't ever arrive at, but we progress in. So it means we must test a man's inner aspiration to office by these observable qualities. So next week we'll talk a little bit more about testing, but there's things that we observe. And it also means that we're not trying to find men to train up to become officers. That's not what we do here. What we do here, given this truth is that we recognize men who are already living this way and doing these things. We recognize them for office. Okay, there's several character traits we got to go through really quickly. First, he's above reproach. That's a big one. That's the overarching, all-embracing trait. Really, that covers everything. Everything else fleshes this out. And uh, it's a man of spiritual integrity He's truly seeking to walk with the Lord. The idea is that he's whole. That's kind of one of the backgrounds to the term. He's not a hypocrite. There's just this general pattern of godliness. There's not a differentiation between his public and his private life. He's blameless or irreproachable. But what happens when he sins? Like he, well, he knows what to do with his sin. He knows that he has a gracious redeemer that he can ask forgiveness from. He knows that if he's offended somebody, he can ask their forgiveness, or if somebody's offended him, that he can extend forgiveness. Like, he knows what to do with his sin because he's going to sin. He's not perfect, but he's above reproach. Like, accusations don't stick because he's dealing with his sin. Paul can say this where the trustworthy saying thing, the first one in the letter is, this is a trustworthy saying that I'm the chief of sinners. So something about being blameless is also recognizing I'm the chief of sinners in this little organization we have here. Which means the ethos of coming into Lawndale is never, let me clean myself up so I can get accepted by this group of people. It's like, we're all undone and we need grace, all of us. 
all of us, the gospel. Okay, so uh, that's blameless. The husband of one wife, and literally it's a one-woman man. Um, you know, it was very obvious there, there, there were those who practiced polygamy there. And he was just saying, you don't have to give up your wives, you just can't be an elder. It doesn't necessarily exclude someone who has gone through a divorce. You have to discuss it, work things out, but that does not exclude. Um, it doesn't require you to be married. But if, if, if you're married, you're a one-woman man. It, the main point is you are striving for sexual purity in a culture that's completely the opposite. And it was no different back then. Ephesus was a madhouse. Three, sober-minded. Well, you're self-controlled, especially in the sense that you're vigilant, temperate, and clear-headed. So two senses, one, in the use of food, drink, money, like you're, you're careful and moderate. You're not getting enslaved and controlled. In terms of thinking, you're, you're thinking and you're speaking, you're self-aware and stable. Like you know how you come across to people. Um, you're not rash and unrestrained. Well, uh, then there's self-controlled, the fourth one. He's self-controlled in the sense that uh, a wise, prudent, and discreet. Like, people can trust you with information. You think things through deeply and exercise good judgment. Well, five, respectable. It's the idea of honorable or a certain degree of dignity. And that doesn't mean stuffy. Um, or, or requiring uh, respect. But there's a certain, like the, the word comes from the word for cosmos. And that's the word for the whole universe, the beauty, harmony of the universe. There's something about, there's an inner virtue in this man that just kind of uh, shines out in an orderly good behavior. There's a certain beauty about it. Just symmetry, like a pattern of godliness there that's, that requires respect. Hospitality, notice that hospitality here isn't a gift, it's a character trait. Uh, he opens the door of his house to others, but even more, he opens his heart to others, like he has an approachable heart. 523, oh, excuse me, literally, it's, he's a friend of strangers. That's the literal definition, and um, he shows love to the lonely, the needy, the one who doesn't have a place, who's new and different. Like you have an eye for those that are struggling. It's huge. Not a drunkard, so literally doesn't sit long with wine. Um, not addicted to wine. It doesn't mean you have to be a teetotaler, it just doesn't. You can drink moderately. I mean, in 523, the same letter, Paul counsels Timothy, have a little wine. Now calm down, Timothy. You're really uptight. But the idea is that, you know, you don't seek your comfort in wine. You're seeking your comfort in the Lord. It's not out of control for you. Uh, not, a, not, not, uh, not violent, the eighth one, that you're just not quick-tempered. Like people aren't going to look at you and say, well, he flies off the handle. You don't know what you're going to get today. It comes from the word meaning strike, or, yeah, to strike. You don't have a chip on your shoulder. You're not stubborn and overbearing. You don't use truth like a club. The more knowledge we have, the more we can use that knowledge in an unbiblical way. And, and you're sensitive to that. You don't do that. 
You don't stand on your rights or seize your rights. Nine, gentle. The opposite of not violent is gentle. It's forbearing and considerate, like you're giving up your rights. It's like Abraham giving up his rights to Lot, which I just love that passage. I don't know if I could have done that. It's the, carrying the thought of fair and helpful and generous, even with hard personalities, like you're a generous person. Love that thought. Um, last week, Psalm 1835, God's gentleness made me great. The picture is that God goes low to lift up David and make him great. Like you would want to lift up others and make them great by your gentleness. 10, not quarrelsome. He's not contentious. It comes from a word meaning sword or fight with weapons. So you just, it, again, it's like this idea of not arguing and fighting or not being divisive, but the idea of being peaceable, like loving peace, working towards peace, a peacemaker. 11, not a lover of money. Literally, it's not a lover of silver, like not being greedy or covetous, but really it's greedy for anything like acceptance, respect, power. Like I have to be number one. I'm greedy for my place. So God may have blessed you with riches. Praise God, praise God. But you're aware of the dangers. You view yourself as a steward and you're generous to others in need and for the extension of the kingdom. 12, a, a loving shepherd leader at home. So this is also gonna be the competency, the double, the double counting one. So I'm gonna mention it twice. But in terms of character, he cherishes his first priority in the home, in the family. Uh, is this the right time for my family for me to take on this job? He's nurturing, caring relationships for his wife and his children. Like if, if, if you ask his wife and children, hey, should he be nominated for office? Uh, your wife and children would say, well, yeah, he'd be, he'd, be, he'd, great. he'd be great. He'd be great. You wanna know that. Um, the children, while they're in the home, are responding well to his leadership. 13, not a recent convert. Literally, it's newly planted in the garden of the Lord. This tender shoot planted in the garden of the Lord. He might have loads of gifts, show all kind of zeal for the Lord, wonderful character traits, all that. This newly planted plant that's just so precious and you want to put him in leadership. And that happens in our churches. It happens, and, um, but we don't wanna do that. Like we wanna give that person, like protect that person and say, look, take some time to, to sit under leadership and have uh, other ways to lead, but don't get into office yet. Take a little time. Why? Because the dangerous thing, there's a red mark on your back. And the devil, what led to his fall was pride. And you might get puffed up because the devil's gonna incite you and you're gonna fall. You could fall. It's a dangerous place to put yourself. Are you ready for it? All of our elders have said, I think I have a red mark on my back at different times. Well thought of by outsiders. We move from the church to the community. Sometimes people know us better in the world than they do in the church. We just spend so much time with others. So how does this person in his outside relationships. It is necessary that have a good testimony with outsiders. The idea is that even if they don't agree with and they say, yeah, he's, he's a real deal. Like, he's a believer. I think he's a real believer. Otherwise, again, a very active devil, he might disgrace, shame, reproach this person by getting tripped up. And now that he's a leader in the church, it's gonna cause problems for the testimony of the church. 
Now the devil loves to do that. We know that in our culture. Ample illustrations for it. It makes us afraid. It's shaking in your boots. You know, I know that I'm weak. I could fall in. I'm prone to fall. Like I'm a big sinner. I need grace every day. All right. So those are the character traits. Now the competencies, real quick. Well, he needs to be able to teach. And that's the main one given here. He needs to be able to teach. Doesn't mean that he has to preach, nor that he has to stand up and lead the whole Sunday school class. But to some degree, he needs to be able to teach. It might be one-on-one, it might be counseling, it might be with the children, it might be with the youth. But in some sense, he, he, he loves studying the word and internalizing the word eating up the word, memorizing, meditating on the word. And he loves bringing the word to bear on situations and for the needs and building and feeding of the flock. Like he loves that. And what might be things that he loves? Well, verse 16, he loves that gospel song. It, it's a song in his heart. God manifest in flesh. Or verses one to seven with those character traits, he knows that Jesus is the one who fills the character traits. Let me tell you about him. Like I'm at a faint reflection of Jesus and so imperfect, but the gospel is that he fulfilled the character traits on my behalf so that before God's throne of judgment, I'm declared righteous by him. Let me tell you about such a redeemer. Um, Steve Lawson, I mentioned that in a prayer this morning, but he has this wonderful quote that God knows, yeah, God knows the best about you and he knows the worst about you. And the one who knows you the best loves you the most. And there's no skeleton that is going to come dancing out of your closet of your life that's gonna turn the heart of God away from you as if he didn't know it already and it caught him off guard. Like what a God. I mean, that so got a hold of your heart. You wanna talk to people about that. That's so at variance to how we normally think. That there's one who took all the judgment on our behalf. Let me tell you about him. I'm a chief of sinners, but he covered me. He gave me a record like 1 Timothy 3, and I stand whole and complete before God. Well, then the other one comes out of uh, managing your household. It says, if you can't manage your household, how can you care for the church of God? And that, that brings us into the shepherding idea again. And uh, just the idea that this competency that you see this group of people that Jesus bought with his own blood. And you see how much Jesus loves this group of people and what it cost for him to get them. And even though it's difficult and it's gonna stretch you in terms of responsibilities and time, that you're saying, I want, I want to have the same love for this flock. And I wanna know them, I wanna feed them, I wanna lead them, I wanna protect them. I wanna be a faint reflection of such a good shepherd that Jesus has been in my life. And it's a competence, it's a competence. And in all that competence, it deepens your own appreciation for the true shepherd and what he's done on our behalf. Not only shepherd, but the sacrificial lamb himself. He takes away the sin of the world. And may God bless you, each one of you. Amen, let's stand.